This is the Tame Aperture Podcast. Open the pod bay doors, Cal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Welcome to the Tame Aperture Podcast, where we discuss movies from first-time directors, indie films, art house, and much, much more. Today on the show, we continue Horror Month with the 1985 classic film by Tom Holland, Fright Night, starring Chris Sarandon and William Ragsdale. So listen in and join the discussion as we go deep into this horror classic right here on the Tame Aperture Podcast. I'm Gabe Bienendahl, filmmaker and film instructor and movie enthusiast. And I'm joined by veteran podcaster and horror film fanatic, Alan Martindale. Alan, how are you tonight? Oh, I'm doing good, man. How about you? <clears throat> doing pretty good. Not too shabby. Had to redo that re- intro about 10 times. Hey, it happens to everybody. Trust me. <laughs> we're good. So tonight we're going to talk Fright Night, the 1985 classic film by Tom Holland. Now, originally we had booked my friend, a uh, producer who lives in Louisiana. He's also a film instructor at the University of Louisiana Lafayette. And also, similar to you, just loves horror films. But he had a family emergency, and so he was unable to join us tonight. So it's just me and you. All right. And hey, we're, we're going to have to figure out how to, how to break this down. I'm down. I'm way down. <clears throat> we're talking horror movies. I'm a happy man. I'm in. Now, I would categorize this film as, as horror, but I might, and this is what I was thinking about as I was doing some preparation, was like, I might actually classify it as a horror comedy. Yeah, I, I've heard, I've seen that description quite a bit for this movie, but it wasn't what I expected. I thought I'd seen this movie, but I hadn't actually. So tell me, okay, so this was a first time watch. Yeah, yeah. All the way through. Now I had originally seen this about two years ago uh, with Donnie, this producer. We were thinking, let's go and try to make a micro budget uh, feature film, mm-hmm. and we'll do it in the horror genre because it seems to be one that's sellable, and it also seems to be one you can do for a lower end budget. And he wrote a film, really good. He was the writer of it. He put the screenplay together. It's a fun story. And I read it, and I'm like, there's no way we can produce this thing for 10K. <laughs> and well, after reading it, it was kind of based on the model for this film called Fright Night. Now, I had never seen Fright Night up to that point. But in this research of like going through different stories and different horror films, I watched Fright Night as a result of what he had written. And so I watched this film a couple of years ago for the first time. And then, of course, this week was rewatching it as in preparation for the podcast. And I still think it falls into that genre of horror slash comedy, but not in the slapstick way. Right, right. But just in kind of it's it, it's paying. It feels like immediately when I'm watching it, it's paying some homage to classic horror films. It has classic characters. Uh, oh, totally. Absolutely. You know, vampires kind of the Dracula character and so on and so forth. I think we'll dive into that a little bit further on. But this is, uh, here's, the, here's the quick film summary for, for uh, Fright Night. Teenage Charlie Brewster is a horror film junkie, so it's no surprise that when a reclusive new neighbor named Jerry Dandridge moves next door, Brewster becomes convinced he is a vampire. It's also no surprise when nobody believes him. However, after the strange events begin to occur, Charlie has no choice but to turn to the only person who could possibly help, washed-up television vampire killer Peter Vincent. So there's our synopsis of the movie. And it does go into, uh, it's 
immediately in a horror. What's interesting about Charlie's character is he's a horror film junkie. Right. So you right. have to be able you have to be able to relate. Immediately to him. when he had when he was making out with his girlfriend and he had the uh, the hor- the old horror movie on, I could re- I've never been in that situation, but I could relate <laughs> to being in that situation. Yeah. If that makes sense. I love that opening shot, which is this long crane tracking shot that starts in the street in the neighborhood one continuous movement all the way through you see some of the credits come up and then you see the title card say fright night i love the red lettering of fright night and i also love how the f is it the f and the t begin to drop down in the formation of uh the dracula yeah the the fangs pop out the fangs loved it yeah it's fantastic and and it's definitely got that vibe and I love how and then that shot continues mm-hmm. and it gets into this scene that we're that you're alluding to which it goes up through uh, the window of a house mm-hmm. and and this whole time in the background we're hearing audio of some kind of television show sure and it gets into the house and here it is and lo and behold there's Peter Vincent who's this uh, late night horror uh, uh, host right who host a show called fright night and then it cut the 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 camera still it goes it keeps going and then it cuts over and we see and this is the introduction to our our main character our protagonist we see charlie he's in his room making out with what's presumed to be his girlfriend and we find out later that it is and this is amy so we have Charlie and Amy, and we're introduced to these characters. And this scene's kind of interesting because I think there's some things going on here. I think it's the classic introduction into what you might consider a horror film, which is teenagers making out. Oh, absolutely. It, it, I mean, it kind of is, is the quintessential setup to a horror film. You have to do that, right? You have to do that. That's the, that's the first thing. So they get into – and th- what, what I found interesting about the scene, beyond the, the cool technical shot, it's a cool technical shot with smooth crane and track all the way through. Um, fun kind of introduction into Peter Vincent. It gives you a little backstory. Later, we're going to meet this guy that's on TV because Charlie can only go to the person that he would assume would know how to handle the situation, and that's this guy. So we'll meet him later. But in the scene, uh, I love how Charlie gets immediately irate. Oh, I know. So she, so Charlie tries to take it too far. Right. He tries to take it too far with his girlfriend. She's not really having it. She tells him, stop. He can't stop. He tries again. She finally sits up and says, hey, that's enough. And his first reaction is just pure he's li- anger. He's livid. He's, he's livid. livid. I, I, it's, I mean, it felt it's weird watching that nowadays because uh, nowadays he's going to be blasted on social media and uh, his life will be ruined. Yes. If, 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 if Amy had access to any kind of social media yeah. and she felt it necessary to voice what was going on with Charlie in that bedroom, yeah. Charlie's life might potentially be done for. I mean, it's fun going back His and watching life. these old hor- these old horror movies because that stuff just doesn't fly these days. You know, like it's the '80s were different. It doesn't translate, and that takes us into that time of the '80s, yeah. Which culturally, it's just kind of a different world, of course, than it is today for a lot of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but I just loved how he got so irate off the yeah. off the bat. He's just pissed. And then the, the the funny part about it is the switch because once he gets upset, he sees out the window. Uh, there's something out the window, and there's something curious that draws his attention, right? Yep. And what is that thing? Do you it's, remember? It's uh, it's it's the two guys hauling the coffin down in, into the basement. So immediately he sees a coffin, which is only 
When you see a coffin, what does it allude to? What's the death? Death. Someone's we go dead. It, immediately. We go right. to death, and and so once again, similar to what we were talking about last podcast, there's kind of this introduction behind uh, the whole thing being set up in this tone of death. Right. And so there's two guys taking a coffin, and also that's like a weirdly strange thing, of course, to see out of your bedroom window. Yeah. Sure. Your neighbor who just moved in, moving a coffin into his basement. It might be enough to uh, distract a, a, a horny teenage boy from, and from that, his anger. That, that's exactly <laughs> it. Because eventually Amy comes around and, and says, okay, let's get into the bed. Right. And Charlie's basically like, no, he's now been diverted by the neighbor who's taking a coffin into exactly. his house. Which was enough for him to, to forget about his anger. And I mean, totally forget his about His sexual it. frustration. Totally forget about it. I mean- He's talking about how this, you know, he's been, it's been a whole year with her and he's, he's, all he gets is no, no, no. Finally gets his opening and he's, he's, he's gone. Yeah. He's gone. And this is funny because I almost, and I, I wonder if it was enough. Look, I'll put myself out there. You go back to the teenage me, mm -hmm. you know, uh, the 17 year old me. And as much as a weird coffin in neighbor moving a weird coffin into their house would be strange. It may not prevent it's me not from the from offer that, right. that a girlfriend just had. Not, no, not happening. You know what I mean? Not happening. So Charlie has a little more, I guess you could say willpower, but really in the, in the sense of the story. But the thing is, it, uh, Peter Vincent was on the TV. She even, she even tried to distract him being like, Hey, Peter Vincent's on the TV. That didn't bother him. True. Even though he's a horror junkie, true. But in real life, if if a horror if a horror movie's happening next door, Danny's going to be interested in that. Yeah, I have a little bit of hesitation to call him a horror junkie. Yeah, he he's, he's he just seems like a typical '80s teenager to me. I mean, he doesn't yeah. look like a teenager, but and I know that's what it says in the description, mm -hmm. right? And that's part of what the process of the story is: is that he's into but he's a horror junkie and we'll get into that a little more because i don't think he is i don't think and so they, either either someone's writing these summaries and they're not quite understanding the character or he's he's a light foot he's not a real horror junkie. no no i don't think right? so i don't think so so but but back to this idea that basically that was enough to to have you know for me either the story can continue or it can completely end at that point. Mm -hmm. And if it's me, once again, taking myself back to that age, the story's over. Right. Oh, yeah, totally. That's the movie it. just ended. That's it. That's it. Because, <laughs> because it's five minutes long. It's five minutes long <laughs> exactly. and it's a short film. Exactly. About yeah. nothing. About absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so props to Charlie for having a little bit of uh, curiosity. Yeah, got a lot of people killed. Yeah, because the curiosity then <laughs> exactly. leads us through the story. Exactly. So... We know there's a coffin and we're trying to figure out how, what those characters have to do with the coffin. And this does incentivize Charlie to want to go and figure it out. So mm -hmm. he kind of starts to his own little uh, curiosity approach and right. has a little bit of investigatory work to do. I really enjoyed the little interaction they had with the mom downstairs. Okay. How the fight continued and they went downstairs. I actually, the mom character was in it for only a few minutes, but I thought she was hilarious. Yeah. Because she is super interested. Like she didn't care that they were up there about to have sex. She wants, she wants them to go get married. She wants to get remarried herself. Like she is like, 
She's all in. I really enjoyed her. You liked Mom. I, I would have liked to see her more in the movie. I think that Mom, for me, in that scene, because after they, they end up not having sex, they go downstairs and they interact with the mom. And does he actually ask, does he actually say anything about what he saw outside to his mother at that point? Do you remember? I think so, yeah. You think he does. I but the so. mom, I, here's the other thing about these these parental figures in these horror films where like she is a little more fun mm -hmm. and a little more interesting than I think uh, Nancy's mom from Nightmare might be. Oh, yeah, totally. Right? But also, they're kind of still secluded. They're kind of oblivious to their own thing. These things. kids are left to their own devices. And I think that's that's kind of the 80s. Like, that's what was happening in it, the 80s. I think that's... Latchkey kids. Yeah. They were they were kids who were coming home from school. They just had their key. Parent, no parental figures around because everyone's off working for the American dream. And I think that's... I think you see that a lot in horror movies. And not just horror movies, but movies in the 80s. And I think that's why. And it's kind of interesting for us now. Because, like, me as a parent, I might, like... like my daughter won't ever be in a room, at least in my house, by herself. Right. With a boy. Oh, never. You know what I mean? Absolutely not. And I'm, sh I'm certainly not. I mean, if they come downstairs talking about how they were just about to make love, someone's gonna die. I'm gonna, <laughs> I'm gonna break some legs. Like that's not okay in yeah, my house. The yeah. shotguns coming out of the cabin. Exactly. Exactly. And then it's really gonna turn into a horror movie. Yeah. Exactly. For real. Yeah. So I, I think that's a funny cultural um, change that's taken place in the last 30 plus mm -hmm. years. And what's funny is cause, cause I'm an eighties kid and you categorize yourself as an eighties yep. kid. Yep. So it's like, we say latchkey kids and things like that and kid, and it's true. And what the irony is now that we have kids, we're the opposite. Right. Right. Exactly. The reality is when I was 12, once I was 12, like my mom did and my parents are great. There's sure. nothing against my parents. Sure. But they had no clue where I was when I was. No way. You're anywhere raising hell around the neighborhood, and yeah. And I was yeah riding bikes, yep. jumping dirt mounds, building forts, building forts. yeah, forest, jumping in the river, whatever it yep. was. And um, they didn't have a clue. Yeah. And we are those kids that had all that, and now we're in some ways hovering and helicoptering over. Oh, I find kids. myself doing it all the time. Yeah. When I catch myself, I kind of kick myself, but it's, it's I do it all the time. I do too. Yeah. And I got to and I have to remind myself. Yeah. And what might be a good reminder is just to step back a little exactly. bit and remember how you how you had it. You don't want to be Nancy's mom at the end of Nightmare where it locks her in the house. She locks her <laughs> in the house. You don't want to be that parent either. That's taking it too far. Yeah, exactly. And you also initially you don't want to like condone having sex in your room when you're 15. Right, right. Up in the, you know, so there's a, there. it's a fine line. These For sure. We can learn from these parental figures I in horror films in the 80s. I totally, I, I've always maintained that you can learn a lot from horror movies in particular because people kind of shy away from them. You can learn a lot from them if you just kind of look at the subtext. Absolutely. No, <clears throat> so they come down, uh, nothing ends up, ends up happening. Charlie was frustrated, but now he's more curious. That sparks the story. It goes forward. And from that point on, Charlie's in uh, full investigatory mode. Mm -hmm. And he's trying to tell everybody that will listen, anybody and everybody to listen. Now, Charlie's back in his room at some point, and, and then he sees across. Now everyone's gone, and it's night again. And across uh, the into his neighbor's window, he sees um, – Dandridge, Mr. Mm -hmm. Dandridge, who's the neighbor who's just moved in, and he sees him and a woman 
in the in the in the frame of the window. Right. Right. And they look like they're about to be intimate. Right. Right. And what I find, I and so I love uh, the the musical cues that play into some of this. Uh-huh. The the overall f- tone of the film musically, there's a little bit of synth or a little bit of like. A streaky guitar, right, right, and things that are very eighties, very eighties. But like then the romanticize certain moments in the film, and it feels like a novella, or a novella, oh, totally, totally, or something that right. has that kind of vibe to it. Because he's looking across the room, and or the the window, and here's these two people about to to have to have sex, right. But then Dandridge looks back at him and notices. Right before he's ready to, to go in for the kill uh-huh. as a vampire, bite. And he notices Charlie looking at him. And this is a catalyst for now Dandridge needs to take care of this problem. And that problem is Charlie. Right, right. Right. But I love the music in that. Oh, for sure. You know. For sure. Th- it's, just, it's just funny. And it kind of plays into these kind of, it's not campy music. But it, like I said, it just has that streaky guitar. It's just, it's that 80s. I mean, I, I'm not a fan of that type of music, but when I watch these movies, it just, it's, it, it, it does feel a little campy. Like there, there are times, and we'll talk about it later, but there, there are a couple moments later on, I'm like, oh my God, the, like just overplaying this synth music. It's just driving me crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Charlie is, is, is clued into what's going on a little bit more. And then Dandridge goes in for the, the kill. Yep. And, and, and. And then the next day it cuts to a news, I believe it cuts to a newscast and you hear about some kind of murder or some kind of death. Um, yeah, that's it. That's later on in the cafeteria. It kind of, it plays up the fight between uh, Amy and Charlie. Oh, yes. Like she busts through, you know, he and, uh, he and evil. <laughs> I just love that, that character, by the way. Oh, yeah. I, I want to talk. He is. There's amazing. some things to go into on Ex- that character. Exactly. For sure. But she kind of, you know, busts through them. They're standing next to each other and they kind of play up that fight. And then they make up. And right when they make up, then he gets distracted again by the news. That's right. Then he gets distracted by the news report. And the news report is about a woman who's been murdered. Yeah. Right. Which we assume and kind of put two and two and two together. And also Charlie does. Basically, it must be that woman that he saw. Right. At Dandridge's house. Right. Earlier. And at this point, you don't really know. Like, and I, I, I thought, mean, I didn't know. I'm thinking about it now when you're watching it. You don't. Yeah. Know. Like it, it's kind of hinting at the vampire stuff. There's a lot of foreshadowing with uh, the old TV movie and all that kind of stuff. And at this point, I, I thought. I knew a little bit about the story, but I hadn't seen the movie. I thought they were going to play into this throughout the whole movie. Like, you don't really know if he's really a vampire or not. It becomes very clear later. Yeah. Within just a few scenes. Exactly. Immediately, we know. So basically, I, I remember uh, at this point, Charlie is, he, he, he's put it together. He thinks he's a vampire. And as the viewer, at least for me, I was thinking, yeah, he might be crazy. But he goes to evil and he gives he offers evil like 5 bucks to tell him how to kill a vampire or what to do and evil thinks he's crazy but he tells him what to do and he gives the typical vampire lore right he talks about the crosses right. the stakes uh, the holy water Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's a couple other things in there, but this is where I take umbrage to the fact that Charlie's a horror film fanatic. Right, or a horror fanatic. he would know that. He would know that. Those are simple things that Charlie would know. Right, everyone knows that. Yeah, even me, it's, who's not a vampire right. horror fanatic, would know that those are the things. I don't. I don't think he, they mentioned garlic at all, which is. Yeah, where's the I'm garlic? A little upset about that. Yeah, they forgot yeah, garlic. That's classic. This is but, all Dracula stuff. But he, <laughs> but he goes to to evil. Mm-hmm. Who's his 
I guess Evil's his friend, but they don't really feel like they have a friendship in a sense. It's almost like Evil doesn't like him and that Charlie's almost making fun of him all the time. Like it, it, I didn't quite understand what their relationship was. Yeah, well, I was confused on the dynamic between the two. Right. And, and maybe that's what it is. Charlie almost looks down on Evil. Is that? I think so. And I think later on, you know, it really hints to how Evil's feeling bullied by a lot of people. But they really don't play that up no. early on. It's yeah. just kind of inferred towards the end. Uh, or not towards the end, but closer to later on in the film. Yeah. I would have liked to have seen that. I, I don't know if stuff got left on the cutting room floor with Evil, but it felt like he was a little, his role was a little underdeveloped to start off with. Yeah, I would agree with that. And, um, but, but he is a, he is a, a, a point in the story that gives Charlie information and, and yeah. gives the viewer information about, okay, if this, and also Evil, like you said, doesn't believe that charlie's telling the truth right he actually might think he's kind of poking fun of him right and trying to get him to you know but one one important thing that evil says is he can't because he's worried that the guy's going to come kill him yeah and he says he can't come into your house unless the homeowner invites him in yes so there is one important piece of information that evil delivers which is the invitation and that's what it is and the next because the next scene is when he's at home Mm -hmm. um his mom asks him to come downstairs and Charlie, ha- he's, Charlie has the information, like, you can't come in. Right. You can't come in and let, he's got this piece. He's feeling super comfortable. He's feeling comfortable in the house. He's even whistling while he goes down the stairs. Yeah, hey, mom, he's yeah. all excited. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and then he gets downstairs, and lo and behold, mom has already invited Mr. Dandridge, a.k.a. Yep. The, the vampire, into the house. Yep. Right? And that's an interesting scene. Uh, that, that scene, to me, I... I Chris Sarandon, who plays Dandridge. I think he's so good in this. He's so good. He's such a great villain. And at the same time, I, on, I honestly just, I, he made me forget about uh, Prince Humperdinck. When I first saw him, I'm like, Princess Bride. Yeah. Princess Bride. I'm, never, I'm not going to get out of my head. But then he was so good that I forgot all about it. Now, now when I see him, I think I'm going to think of this role. That's interesting because I was actually thinking the, similar, uh, same, the same thing, which was like, this is Humperdinck. This is Princess Bride. But he plays into it so well. What makes his character for you when you're watching his performance? What what was that draw? Uh, it's it's certainly the charm. Because I think a good vampire has to have that charm. But he was able to play it in a way that he was very charming. But he, it was very sinister at the same time to right. specifically Charlie. And I think as an actor, that had to have been a very difficult thing to do. But it, there weren't musical cues. It wasn't like they weren't over overplaying it. I think it was all in the performance, if I remember correctly. Yeah. And just the way he said, now that I've been invited in, I plan to come all the time. Yeah. Whenever I want. Yeah. And I just thought it was so charming to the mother, but also very sinister towards Charlie. That's great. And that dynamic and that, that kind of duality is, I agree, what, what makes Sarandon play such a good vampire role, mm-hmm. which is like he can be sweet in a way and seductive. Yeah. And then also be kind of evil and mean spirited. Man, what he he just plays such great villains, because Prince Humperdinck, man, I hated classic. Him. I still hate him to this day. I'll watch that movie and I just despise that character so yeah. much. Yeah, and I didn't despise Dandridge, but I I definitely I was kind of charmed by him. And I think that's what a good vampire or a good villain kind of does. You, you got to be charmed by him a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the traditional approach to the Dracula or to right. the vampire, which right. is 
they have to have a seductive charm. Absolutely. If they don't have that, then they're they're just you know they're a wild animal with nothing to you know like there's nothing right. there. Thirty days of night vampires. Right. That's right. what they are. Right. And so it's almost like they've got to have a little bit of uh, a charisma that allows the viewer to have. A sense of like even a little bit of sympathy, yeah, or they're endearing. Exactly, in a way. you have yeah. to understand why some of these characters can be enchanted by them. Yeah. You have to understand that a little bit. Yeah. So now in the story, it's basically we know that, that Charlie knows. We also know that Dandridge knows. Dandridge has that conniving smile, like I'm coming back when I want. Yeah. Does he come back that night or is it later? I think it's that night. I want to say it's that night. Just trying to it put the timeline the in my head. Bed. I remember that it cuts like pretty hard cut to her sleeping. That's right. And then him kind of walking and whistling. Because, well, Dandridge actually comes in. He's in the mom's room. That's right. And he comes in through the mom's room and kind of sees her sleeping and then ultimately goes into Charlie's room and he hides in Charlie's closet. Right, right. And Charlie comes in. And this is great shot, too. And actually, it was scary. It's the, it was. I, the idea of like someone being in your bedroom. There's always that. And, and then, of course, uh, um, really emphasizing that by n- giving the viewer the knowledge of where the monster mm-hmm. is and the the main and the character not knowing. It's that kind of traditional uh, horror setup, which is like, I know where he is. Right. But the, well, the character doesn't. And there's the there's always the and it, it's a classic horror shot because it's it works so well. It's the main character in the foreground in focus and the monster out of focus emerging. And it goes back to I think the, my first memory of it is Michael Myers in Halloween when Jamie Lee Curtis is sitting on the floor. She thinks she just killed him. And then out of focus, you see him just sit up. And yeah. I, that's the first time I remember seeing it. But it's su- it's such a good shot. And I think, I guess you could say it's overused, but it's still effective. It's still very effective. I find I found myself scared still. And yeah. this is and this is not a movie where you're necessarily um, jumping out of your seat, right, right. in fear, or like with Texas Chainsaw, you're not necessarily like just utterly disturbed by what you're seeing. Mm-hmm. This is a different kind of horror film. But I like where you're alluding to, which is that that shot. And then maybe there's some traditional aspects to that shot in other horror films. Mm -hmm. But I was actually scared because and it also had to do with the pacing. So so Charlie walks into the room and we get him into the foreground and it stays on him for a long time before there's actually an emergence of the character of Dandridge from the closet. So, so it's that, building up that tension, that anticipation right. builds into that. And then, of course, when he comes out, Charlie, he, he after about 10 seconds, finally realizes as he's kind of moving backward that there's something behind him. Yep. He gets the yep. sensation, which is also a cool play into all of our own psychology. At some point, you've <laughs> when in your life have you not like turned around right. quickly? I mean, for whatever. Right. But at some point, like there's someone behind. It's me. like being in the basement. You turn off the lights. You got to run upstairs. Yeah. You never know who's behind you. You never know what's going to come exactly. out, of the, out of the shadows. Exactly. But it's a great shot. And then this is finally there's some confrontation, like real confrontation. And Dandridge... Uh, starts to talk to him and, and Charlie frightened. And then Dandridge gets very physical with him. Mm-hmm. He like, he picks him up. He's using some of his strength as a vampire to kind of physically manipulate him yep. around the room. And here's what I have a question on in this particular scene, which is now ch- he picks him up. He throws Charlie, he's got him um, 
pushed out the window or kind of out the windowsill as if he's ready to push him off the outside. Mm-hmm. And Charlie grabs like a, a he grabs a pencil from right. his desk or somewhere right. and stabs uh, Dandridge in the hand. Right. And this like this makes Dandridge just completely. Uh, he he becomes he becomes incapable of doing. He, yeah, it's uh, it's it's like it paralyzed him or something. It was bizarre. I, that was the question. Like, what is it? Because it's a wood pencil, and it had. I mean, you think of the wood stake, and the stake has to go through the heart, right? But like, what? I didn't get it. I I didn't quite get that either. I, I think that's probably why it's a it's a mini stake. But I just it seems like they're so invulnerable, except for these specific things, like a stake through the heart or a cross to the forehead or sunlight, you know? Yeah. So it just, I didn't quite get that either. Um, I think it's mainly probably just a tool to show the audience that they are vulnerable. He's vulnerable and he can, he can be hurt. There's a vulnerability to the monster. I guess that's what it is. It angers him. Yeah. To the point that he actually begins to turn into his demonic version. And we see, this is a, one of the real first kind of practical effect shots. Yeah where we see a lot of the prosthetics. Um, what, what, are your, what were your takeaways from the prosthetics and, and the look of the actual uh, the demon or the, the vampire I, in this? I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I mean, when they, when they went full vamp, vampire mode, I absolutely loved it. I mean, that's up to that point, it's like, yeah, whatever. But right when they get that, they get the horror junkie in me. I'm like, yes, yes. And, and you see that throughout this film when they do the practical effects. It just speaks to my soul for some reason. I just love... Better than the CGI stuff. It just, it, it, it does something to me. It makes me, it, this is what I love in horror movies is seeing that kind of stuff. Do you ever look at it though? And do you still, do you, do you watch it with that same eye? Or when you look at it, do you go with a 2019 eye? Well, that's good. But Some movies I like, do Like, do you that. know what I mean? Do you, yeah. do you, do you try to separate the 1985 eye or lens from the 2019 lens? Um, I don't know if I can fully separate it, but, uh, I, I try to just look at it for what it is. Uh, there are some movies, a lot of the, the later nightmare films where I'm just like, ugh, really? But it, there's just something like the campiness of it, the ugliness of it and the, in, the imperfection of it really, really gets me going. And, and I didn't think there was too much of that in this movie, especially with, with the vampire makeup and the prosthetics and all that. I thought it looked great. It's always f- interesting for me because when i'm looking at it once again i fall back to this lens of a filmmaker mm-hmm. and i go man they did a really good job right putting these prosthetics together and this looks legitimate this is a great look mm-hmm. and at the same time in my 2019 lens i go it's a little outdated right right it doesn't quite hold up and that's not a knock on the you know the actual the the prosthetic itself it's just it when you get so inundated with cgi because you can look at cgi too and also be like that's fake right but there are certain things that translate over and you're like that looks fucking amazing Mm -hmm. Um, and it looks believable and it looks real and so that's part of it like part of it's like i love it i get amped up about it the other part of me is like yeah, it kind of takes me out because I go, this doesn't feel maybe as real as it could. The thing that did that to me in this movie was the teeth, especially later on with some of the other vampires we'll get to. It's the teeth. It just it it 
like they're trying to talk with these big fake teeth in it just doesn't doesn't hold up it doesn't look right uh i think it'd be just as, as effective if they just put some a couple fangs in there hold on to that thought because i think i know where you're going yeah. and i want to talk about that yeah. <laughs> the teeth in specific dandridge uh reveals himself he's gone full vamp i don't know why dandridge just didn't kill him because he jammed the door for a specific reason for exactly so she can't get out and stop him. Right. So I don't know why, but for some reason that was enough with the pencil through the hand for him to be like, I'm out of here. That's right. So they leave the first confrontation. And and up to this point, and now, and now Charlie knows for, for real, this is a real thing. He already did. He had his assumptions, but now it's become yeah. actual. And at this point, he goes to the only person he knows who he can and that's peter vincent the 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 host from the tv show fright night and this is this is why i think it's so funny because charlie he doesn't he's not looking for practical solutions he's looking for he's looking towards people who would have knowledge of something totally fake like he he goes to evil first of all and this this kid is obviously a nerd he's he's obviously the horror junkie here yeah, that's the other thing is we we said uh, uh, Charlie is right, but it almost feels like evil. I is, think evil is the actual is. junkie, right? Yeah, and then he, he he knows evil knows a little bit about this stuff, and then he knows a guy who plays a vampire killer on TV, an actor, and he that's his his second person he goes to. So Charlie doesn't really know what he's doing. Um, he doesn't really know where to get help, and the fact that he's turning to these. Two people who obviously have no idea what's going on. Don't believe this for a second. Uh, it, it, I don't know if it shows his desperation or his ignorance, but he's he's definitely looking for answers. You're basically calling Charlie out as a fraud. Totally, totally. He's In a terms fraud. of horror, exactly, horror exactly. fanatic. I mean, this is this is bogus, man. Char- Charlie's on. a fraud. Exactly. He does end up going to Peter Vincent, and then it's revealed. We kind of know, like immediately, there's something off about Peter mm-hmm. Vincent. Mm-hmm. He's he's. He he believes he doesn't believe what it, he portrays on television. Not at all. And so. also that job of hosting these movies and acting in these movies is all he has in life. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. what he has to hold on to. Yeah. So he goes to Vincent. Vincent kind of blows him off. Mm-hmm. If they were true horror junkies, you'd think there would be some interest, even if you know as a horror junkie it's not real. Right. In the back of your head. There's still like something going, what if? For sure. For and I, I get this all the time. Like I was talking to my girlfriend and my and my buddy Nate the other day. Um, I don't believe in ghosts, but they were talking, you know, about about the possibility and we're talking about horror movies and all that. And I was like, Man, I would just love I would love to actually see a ghost. I would love for one of these experiences to happen to me. Because I want that in real life. Like I, I don't want to be uh chased by Leatherface, but to know that there's a possibility of, of something actually going on, that's fun. Yeah. That's intriguing. And the fact that these guys, neither of them are like, let's let's figure this out. Let's go investigate this. They're, even, t- they're frauds. Even the smallest inkling of exactly. curiosity. Exactly. So uh, they don't believe what it is they, they portray to believe. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's funny that you say that. Well, and you wouldn't want to do the le- what's – We'll go back to Leatherface. That that could happen. Right, right, exactly. What's fun about the ghost, or in this case, a Dracula or a vampire or uh, a monster of any kind, is that there's some kind of supernatural essence to it. Right. Um, 
that we're all as 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 humans going is that could it is it is it right. and even if you say absolutely no still 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 intriguing to talk about or at least consider for sure for fun for sure and peter vincent blows him off his girlfriend amy and evil they actually think charlie's gone bananas yeah definitely. they think he's crazy definitely they think he's losing losing his shit so they end up getting in touch with peter vincent it, well and this is something i want i wanted to talk about a little bit it's a little creepy that these these old people keep being attracted to this teenage girl because you remember when when charlie goes to talk to peter vincent he he blows him off but as soon as this girl shows up on his doorstep, he's like, come on in. What can I do for you? Yeah. And you could tell there's I don't know if they if this is on purpose, but it seemed like there was a bit of an infatuation there. And it's just a little creepy. It's a little creepy. It's definitely a little creepy. Yeah. It It's also um, possibly true just in for sure the nature of human beings, which is like an older gentleman seeing a an attractive young female for sure uh is going to just naturally be more responsive right 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 but it, even even the weird freak that she has tagging along doesn't deter him at all because evil's tagging that's along a good with point her. yeah it, he just he zoned in right on her <laughs> and it was just it was a little creepy to me and it happens later on in the film too and it's just a little little creepy it, it is creepy, but well, it does happen later on. And of course, th- we'll get into that with Dandridge. Right, uh, right. And that's a different dynamic. They give context there of why, right, why right. there's an infatuation there. Now, so much so that Peter Vincent will actually listen to Amy, of course. Mm-hmm. And, at, and, and as such, um, uh, he will uh, uh, appease them. Right. And basically, you know, try to go help Charlie figure out that Mr. Dandridge next door is not a vampire. Right. Well, she pays him, but he's still, it's still she gives enough. him money. Right. Because he just got fired from, because from he got job. fired. That's true. So there's, they kind of throw that into it mm-hmm. a little bit, like it, the money thing. Well, um, and I also, I think that there's also something because with Peter Vincent, he's played a vampire killer for however many years. And there's a part of him that probably would like to think that that's real because it gave him purpose to play this character. And now he kind of has a chance to do it. He's getting paid for it, so it gives him an excuse. I think for him, the more I'm thinking about it, I think for him there's more of an allure here than, than is even being led on. Mm. And I'm not even sure if it was intentional uh, from Tom Holland or not, but it just, mm. it just feels like – and later on it definitely plays that up when he actually goes into the house you know, to, to hunt this vampire. Yeah. I, I think he, it gives him purpose, whether, even though he's really just been playing a character – He's almost wants to become that. Yeah. Because he doesn't know anything else. And maybe you play something for so long, you fall into the believability that that's who you are. Yeah, right, right. You know, and he's been playing that role for years. Exactly. Amy gives him money. So aside from seeing a young, attractive female, that's what gets her, gets her in the door. But she does give him money. Mm-hmm. And this alludes to the fact that also Vincent is is poor and has no, he's, he's trying, he needs the money. Right. And, and so, but they appease him and they get in touch with Dandridge. And this is what I don't get in, in terms, because they, they want to appease Charlie to make sure that he's not, to, to show him that he's crazy. Mm-hmm. And they go to, to Peter Vincent to do that. And Peter Vincent talks, he, he gets in touch with Dandridge and tells him they're going to be, they, they do a phone call. Yeah. Yeah. Right? They do a phone call. 
and ask, <laughs> ask can we use crosses? Can we use holy water? And, of course, Dandridge says no. And he says no to all those. And this is where I kind of start to categorize it into comedy. Right, right. And it, it, it's not that I don't enjoy it up to this point because I still enjoy it all the way through. Sure. And this just kind of, I realize now more than ever, at least to a degree, that this is kind of verging on a horror comedy. Well, yeah. And, and the fact that Charlie would put his faith in an actor and, and like this is the authority, this guy, it, it, he's going to prove yeah. that this guy's a van. You know, the, the fact that he's putting all his hopes into this one guy yeah. who's an actor. To me, that's that's inherently funny. Yeah, it is funny. Yeah, because the follow-up scene once they get hold of Dandridge and they do all the cross-check, like you can't do this, yeah. you can't do this, yeah. can't do this. Yeah. The next scene is Charlie going, he waiting outside the house, waiting for Peter Vincent so they can go to Mister Dandridge's right. house and do the test. Right. And Charlie's frantic because Dan, or uh, Peter Vincent's ten minutes late. Right. 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 He's exactly. Like, you know, but exactly. that whole that whole sequence is kind of. It, it, it's it's kind of comedic for sure uh, for sure because it's so kind of just above the air it's just kind of right. floating and funny and silly and they go into the dandridge's house he invites him in they go in or no he doesn't invite him in billy is dandridge's sidekick mm -hmm. billy invites them in the house yeah and i want to get into that a little bit too because i'm not sure who billy is when it comes to a being yeah i don't either uh, we'll, we'll talk get about into that, though, we'll yeah. Get, so they invite him in, they go, and Peter Vincent has brought with him holy water, right? Quote-unquote holy water. Quote-unquote holy water, takes it and gives it, offers it to Dandridge. Uh, Dandridge knows it's tap water. It's tap water. Right. So Dandridge drinks it, and this is to appease Charlie and then also prove that he's crazy. And to try and stop him from murdering this this poor man. Because that's ultimately what's going to happen. They're thinking that Charlie's going to try to kill Dandridge. Right. And then it's going to be bad news for Charlie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he drinks the water, but we know that it's not really holy water. And Charlie even says it. Like, how do I know that the father blessed it, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And then uh, Charlie pull, pulls out a cross. At this moment, he does pull out a cross and he puts it up. And then everyone's like, Charlie, stop being crazy and ridiculous and put that away. And in that one slight cut that they use and it cuts to Dandridge, you see his fear. He takes a step back. Yep. Um, and so, as, and, and, but no one, of course, saw that. Right. Right. No one noticed. I, I wanted someone to see it. Right. I, right. Wanted, I wanted a cue into Amy going, whoa, I saw, you know what I mean? Well, and that's why I thought that they were going to play up this whole thing where uh, Charlie's crazy the whole movie. I thought that they were going to that was going to be the through line throughout the whole movie is like you get so close to busting him in front of people and you don't like uh, but they didn't do that. And very quickly, actually, uh, Peter Vincent pulls out his mirror. Yes. Looks and there's no reflection for Dandridge. He's looking in the mirror and then they see no reflection. Dandridge yep. has nothing. This frightens him. Yeah. So much that he drops the mirror. And as a result, a piece of glass stays on the floor. I wasn't sure what that was at first. Yeah. I mean, later then it's revealed right. that, that Dandridge steps on it, and that's how he knows that they know now mm -hmm. because they saw there was no reflection in the mirror. Right. And so they go running out of the house. They real, Peter Vincent's scared. He's shaking. Charlie knows something's up. Right. 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 And he's like, what are, what's wrong with you? What are you doing? 
And, and finally, Vincent says, I'll tell you what I saw, which was no reflection in the mirror. I, mm-hmm. I know that there's something strange there. Right. And then he just bolts off. He just takes off. He's like, see ya. Yeah. Which is what no- anyone would normally do. Do you think so? I would do that. I'd be out of there, man. <laughs> if I just found out vampires are real and but I was I, just if I put house. myself in the character of, of Vincent this is all the more reason that we know that he's a fraud for sure because for sure. he's I mean if you were truly had a slight interest in it yeah you might there's an interest of wanting to like dig a little deeper well and I think he's above all at this point in the film I think he's just a coward I think he's mainly a coward and he, there are multiple times he tries running throughout this movie. And this is kind of the first instance of that. And then that obviously this is the character arc that, that we build up to later on. We can talk about that. While we're, that's what it was. Talking quickly about performance. Uh, the performance of Peter Vincent mm-hmm. by Roddy McDowell. So what, what immediately, I'm a Planet of the Apes fan. Mm-hmm. The franchise to me I've always loved. And, I, and so I immediately recognized the name. Right. Uh, Roddy McDowell, because if you watch the old Planet of the Apes film... He's in the first two, right? He's in the first two, Dr. Cornelius. That's right. And so I recognized the name. And what's funny is like I wouldn't have recognized his face mm-hmm. necessarily. Right, right. Because I've only seen... I from what, I'm, I know that he's done other movies. Sure. Uh, but what, what did you think about his performance as Peter Vincent? Because Peter Vincent's basically a play on Vincent Price. Totally. Uh, at least from what, my, what I would assume... Right. Right. It's a play on Vincent Price. And what was his... Because uh, you're talking about him being fraudulent and all these right. kind of things. I, I thought... At first, I wasn't sold on him. It wasn't until later in the film that I actually really appreciated what he was doing. And I actually think he was great. Yeah. Uh, the only actually performance I wasn't thrilled with was Charlie. And that may have just been because I don't think he was fleshed out as a character very well. So an interesting fact on that is Evil Ed, the character who plays... Uh, the, the actor who plays Evil Ed was auditioning and wanted to be Charlie. Oh no way! That would have put a different spin on it. Because that would have put a different spin. So we talk about <laughs> no, we're getting we're talking about these characters and their performances. Right. Like let's talk about Evil Ed and his performance. Uh, that kid, I loved him. I loved him, and I, I he's kind of an iconic character in the horror world. Like I like I said, I I hadn't seen this movie. I thought I had, but I knew of that character, and I knew of that performance, and I've seen clips of him. And I thought it was going to be when he showed up and I'm like, oh, it's this. That's the guy. I thought it was going to be over the top. I thought it was going to be obnoxious, but I actually really loved it. I thought he was a great comedic break. And I, I, I love the character and I loved what he did with it. I had a hard time with him. Really? It, it, my love or affinity for this character and this performance was as schizophrenic as his personality. <laughs> yeah, I, I can understand that. So there are moments that I loved mm-hmm. him. And yeah. I, th- I thought it was great. And then there were other moments where I wanted to punch him in the face. Yeah, for sure. For sure. So, and once again, maybe that plays into the dynamic of that role. But there were things that I just was like, and it, they're overplaying it, right? Yeah. Or is that who, we, we talked about this last time, because I think there's certain characteristics, people just play a role a certain way because it's innately in them. Right, right. And I almost feel like he has a little bit of that in this role. I think he has to. And, and I haven't seen anything else he's done, but I really want to now. And I hated that because I wanted to punch him in the teeth. Right, totally. I mean, there Half are times the time. like in the alley later on where you're just like, oh, my God, dude, I just, you're terrible. Yeah. You're terrible. I, and, and speaking of that, so after they all leave and Vincent Price goes, they all, they're all gone out of Dandridge's house and they're walking home, mm-hmm. right? They go through, they get to the alley and then uh, uh, 
Evil Ed and Charlie and Amy, they all split up. Right. And Evil Ed is actually now calling Charlie crazy. Yep. Straight up. Straight up. Like, you're the crazy. You're crazy. Right. And Evil Ed's like, I'm taking a shortcut through the alley. Right. And he plays the joke on him. And it was telegraphed in there. Obviously, it's a joke. Yeah. And uh, and it real it just I this is the part where I hated him. Yeah. Up, up till now, I'm like I'm like okay, I can I, I like this guy. Like I can get into it, and I thought he did a great job. But this is the part where it's just like, and I think it was just the writing, honestly, more than anything. Yeah. It's just like I mean, come on, man. And then, uh, but what happens to Evil Ed? I was not expecting. Yeah. I was not expecting him to turn. So here's the thing about that scene. Once Evil Ed, Charlie, and Amy split their ways, Evil Ed goes down the alleyway. Mm-hmm. One thing I love from a, from a technical standpoint is what, they, what, what Tom Holland does really well and that I, I kind of dug, I kind of got into, was how he would um, do the approach of Dandridge or, yes. the, or the vampire. Yes. So you see uh, w- once Evil Ed is walking down the alley and you see this kind of almost bird's eye shot mm-hmm. and it's this high aerial and it's kind of following. And they also give like a, this cool sound effect of like a almost, it's not quite wings flapping right. like a bat, but it's, it's got a little whoosh to it, mm-hmm. a little wind. And you know that that's a POV of the actual character or the vampire or, yep. or, or Dandridge. Yep. Absolutely. And it's cool. And that shot when he's in the alleyway and he's doing that, it actually, what's cool about it is it changes perspectives in the shot. So what I mean is, it starts out bird's eye over Evil Ed. Mm-hmm. We hear the whoosh. So now we are POV from Dandridge's point of view, right. his perspective. And then the camera starts to pin and crane downwards. Oh, I don't and remember then it, that And part. then it hits the alleyway while we still see, it's all one shot, we still see Evil Ed walking down the alley. And then as it comes down, we get an over the shoulder of Dandridge. So now it's changed. Like we still, it's still Dandridge's perspective, right, right? But now he's actually in the frame. Well, and I know there's a couple times when they do that kind of thing where the the cameras, it just feels like it's floating in the air. Some really cool camera. Very movements. cool, yeah. What I was impressed with also was that this is Tom Holland's first feature film. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. I had no idea. So, the execution of these types of shots, you know, anytime you step into a director's role, like you've directed short films and mm-hmm. I've directed projects. And every time you're looking at a story, trying to break it down and figure out where the coverage points are and how to do it, like what I was impressed with Holland is the way that he moves the camera and, and uses the movement to really help build the story. Absolutely. I mean, you, you, it, it, it's, there's a maturity there in what he was doing that you don't see in first-time directors very Most often. Most times you don't see that yeah. in first-time directors, yeah. Once Dandridge uh, confronts Evil Ed in the alleyway, is that vampire uh mental exercises that he throws on evil ed because it's not a a thing of like the vampire going in and just kind of grabbing him and using brute force and strength to like just take a bite out of the neck it's actually like an offering it it felt almost like he knows and this is where i'm a little disappointed that there wasn't more i guess exposition on evil ed and kind of his character because this is the part where they want you to believe that he's been bullied and he, he's tired of being bullied. And I just didn't see it very often. Other than him saying, stop calling me evil, uh, I didn't really see him getting bullied a whole lot. That's a great point because I was wondering what the offering was and why immediately Evil Ed was so submissive. 
And because I, Dandridge says something to him along those lines, like you'll never be you'll never be pushed around again. I'll, I'll see you to it. All you got to do is embrace me. He does. And uh, that's what I'm like. Okay, that's what they were trying to go with evil, but they just didn't do it. I like that that angle, and yeah. I like that analysis. And I think that they that's one area where they possibly could have improved yeah. the development of the character. And that, that's why I wonder if, if stuff got cut, uh, more stuff about evil got cut. Uh, I don't I don't know, but it just felt like something. When I saw that part, I was like, something's missing. Because that's the other thing. We were talking about evil's character, and I and I, half the time I liked him, half the time I didn't. Right. But I never really sympathized with him in that way. Right, not at where all. Where I felt bad. Right. I liked seeing him on screen. I thought he was funny, and uh, I thought he was a, a good change of pace, but I never once sympathized with him. And so Dandridge makes an offering, and evil's submissive, and he holds his hand up, and you basically know he's going to turn him. Yep. Yeah. Um, and that's a great, a great, I like your, uh, your thesis on that. So evil ends up getting turned. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and at this point, uh, now Dandridge starts to follow Charlie and Amy mm-hmm. down the, you know, that, through the town and through the, and all this stuff. And while that's happening, evil makes his way back to Peter Vincent's apartment. Yes. yes. And he goes into Peter Vincent, Peter Vincent allows him to come in. And now Peter Vincent's frantically scared he's it's he's like what are we gonna do right how are we gonna do it he right. doesn't know because he knows that dandridge is a truly a vampire right and then uh this is where you know talk about the the go back to some of the practical effects and mm-hmm. some of the the prosthetics and things like that because evil is now starting to turn yep so his mouth is changing and his teeth are changing etc you know he's getting the eyes and everything and we go to those teeth. Those teeth. Oh, my God. Those teeth. They're terrible. They're terrible. The, it, to me, it, it took me out of it because I, kind of, I was believing it and I, I was into it and I was feeling it. And then those teeth are just so bad. They're too intrusive to yeah. the character and they don't feel authentic to that, to, to the, what's going on. Like, I agree. They'll take you out of it. And the character can't even deliver the line of dialogue no not at all he's drooling he's spitting everywhere it's it was super annoying yeah and he's basically uh the confrontation is essentially peter vincent and evil ed who who kind of goes to attempt to turn peter vincent right and then they kind of do a little wrestle but then peter vincent holds up a cross or no he burns him on the head sorry he burns him on the head and and this is uh where Peter Vincent, you start to he starts to believe that maybe he is a vampire killer, and this is the part where he, maybe he's starting to get a little bit more confidence because he just took out this vampire, even though it's just a, a, a brand new vampire, just barely birthed essentially. Yeah. Um, the thing I didn't understand is it doesn't seem like the rules are consistent because early on, Evil tells Charlie, you have to have faith in order to for the cross to work. Right. And later on, we see the cross doesn't work on Dandridge when when uh, Peter Vincent's holding it, but it does work on Evil. So I, I don't understand the rules here. Yeah, I don't know if that's an oversight or if I'm missing something. I could be missing something too, but I, I thought a similar thing. And while you were saying that, I yeah, there's a little inconsistency in the rules. Right. right. The only thing I could say would be that either does it have to do with the fact that because Evil Ed is just a a, a freshly turned vampire could be 
that the you know like he's so easily quote unquote manipulated by the cross right right because his power's not strong enough I, and that's kind of what I what I took from it I that's think. the only thing I yeah. could think of because I thought the same thing later it becomes a plot point where Dandridge does that and says right. you can't you have to have faith right but he burns this cross and head that was a cool effect that was very cool that was very cool so that helped me get past the teeth for sure he burns the for cross sure. in and then. <laughs> We keep going back to this, but then, so then, uh, because he's holding the cross up, evil needs to get out of the house. He needs to leave. And he dive bombs out yeah, the yeah. window. He pulls a Sally from Texas Chainsaw. That's right. He pulls a yeah. Sally, dive bombs out the window. And now you're right. I think at this point, Peter Vincent's starting to believe his own, his self. Right. And, and what he always has pro- proclaimed to be. Right, right. You know? he, still, he still tries to bail later on, but I think... He, if it wasn't for this interaction, I don't think he would have been enticed to come back. So it's a good turning point in the story for that character development mm-hmm. to give him a little courage. And, and this is kind of where the point, it's a little bit after this, where I start to think that Peter Vincent becomes the main character. I kind of, I, I've lost interest in Charlie a long time ago. Yeah, you were saying that. And I'd like to get into that a little bit, which is like what you hated Charlie. I didn't hate him. But I just thought he was, I, I, I don't understand his character. Where does he have all this bravery uh, to just just charge head head on into dangerous situations. Uh, I I just don't. I feel like there was a lot of character development that was not done on him, and I just felt cl- I didn't relate to him. I don't know where he came from. I thought you know the actor did he did he was fine. There was just nothing that grabbed me about Charlie as much as the other characters. Yeah, that's that's interesting. He the. Uh, and 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 at the end, like I think that Peter Vincent probably plays almost as big a role as Charlie does. Yeah, I agree to some extent. I agree, and we'll get into that ending here shortly. But that's an interesting viewpoint. It's an interesting stance. I think that's you know, you gotta you have to have a character that people can get behind. If mm-hmm. you have a hard time getting behind the main character, the believability of the story becomes that that much uh, less involved for right. the audience. Right. So that's an interesting perspective. I, from Charlie's, um, I also didn't lo- love his performance as an actor. Mm-hmm. I, there was, uh, and it goes back to that believability. And, um, and it could actually be more in the character writing than the actual performance itself. And it itself. could be. But yeah. I, I saw a thing on Amazon Prime. They have the little uh, tidbits, the little trivia facts. And I guess Charlie Sheen auditioned to play Charlie. And uh, the Tom Holland didn't think he had the right look, hmm. which is interesting. I'm not sure what look they were going for because he had that, that college professor's coat on the whole time. He looked like he was 25 years old. He didn't look like he was 17. So I don't, I'm not quite sure what look they were specifically going for with him. And that's one, and, and I'm, that's one flaw for me that is, is tough to get um, past. Right. Because um, your main character should be the umbilical cord into the audience. I agree, totally. And um, he just doesn't have that. And it, sometimes it's innate. Like uh, a certain actor just has something that you can get behind. Right, right. Uh, whether they're playing a certain role or not. Sure, sure. Um, and so I, maybe that, that kind of was lacking for me. Um, so that's an interesting stance to take on. And I, and I think I agree with that. Because I, I think Tom Holland wrote this too, right? Yeah, he was the writer-director. And it's probably yeah. the first feature he's written too. It's not actually. Oh, it was, it's not. Yeah, he had done a few other films, and I don't remember them off the top of my head, but he okay. had written other screenplays. And then I do this tidbit was that he had started to pitch around this one, Fright Night. Okay. Um, and everybody was like, yeah, it looks, it's okay, but no one was biting on it. Mm-hmm. Because part of the stipulation was that he wanted to direct it. 
Okay. And so a lot of times people get hesitant and producers and executives get hesitant because it's a first time director. Kind of like a Rocky type thing. Yeah. Right. But in this case, he had written other films that had been produced. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but I thought, it, once again, and we'll throw it back, as a director, you did oh, a great job. Phenomenal. So, so now it's, 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 uh, it's Charlie and Amy and they're running and, and now Dandridge is after them. He's already turned evil Ed. And then they're, and they're running through the town getting, and they end up getting into an alleyway and then they bolt through a club. Mm-hmm. You know, there's dancing and music stars. This is where the music was driving me crazy. Okay. I mean, this whole scene, I mean, it's so eighties and I, I have a hard time with heavily like heavy, heavy eighties movies. And it's almost specifically because of the music. I just that music is like uh, fingernails on a chalkboard for me. That's why I'm not happy with the whole Stranger Things fad going on right now because the synth music just drives me insane. It just drives me insane. This music is so I can see for you why it drives you crazy Mm -hmm. because it's all 80s. Um, I'll read you a couple titles of these okay. songs okay. and you can immediately know it's 19. It's in the 80s. Okay. Save me tonight. Of course. Armies of the night. <laughs> Sorry. Boppin' tonight. Come to me. Let's talk. Rock myself to sleep. And good man in a bad time. I mean, these are all utterly just just 80s titles and i wonder if those titles were if these songs were chosen because of the titles because if you look at it it's all describing what's going on in the scene yes uh every and so it's all it's it's completely a form of of narration yes in a sense like the lyrics that are being delivered through the music are actually kind of in a narrative sense, telling us what's going on on screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's some interesting, yeah. Had a hard time with the eighties soundtrack. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't mind it. I actually like it cause it does. I mean, it's very specific for sure. And like you said, you can identify those immediately go. That's the eighties. Right. Right. And right. so I kind of got behind it. Well, and I understand there are, are the, the majority of people enjoy that and they, they like the eighties for that reason, because of the music and all that, the, the neon and the hair and the shoulder pads on the women and all that stuff. But for me, it's just like, Oh, I mean, I grew up in that. I don't need to see this again. You were, you weren't interested. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. I'm, I'm, I'm weird like that. People, people enjoy it, but they're in the club and then Dandridge is making his way through the crowd mm-hmm. And he's kind of finding him, himself getting closer and closer to Charlie and to Amy. And he's doing this seductive walk. Yeah, that was interesting. You know, he's going. And, and, and at this point, I'm wondering if that's partly the, the vampire ability to read minds. I, almost, I like how they filmed it. Because for me, it felt like Dandridge, we were getting into uh, Dandridge's ability to kind of uh, read into Amy's mind. Because... He's he's seductively kind of pulling her in, even though they're physically separated That's by a lot of space. That's interesting. And they're, it's a weird kind of movement, almost like snake-like. Yeah, yeah. So if you look at the way that Dandridge's movie goes from screen left to right and then right to left. Right. And kind of snaking his way. And it's cutting to um, shots of Amy. And we see Amy's response. She's almost like getting caught up in the seductive power. Absolutely. I liked it. I thought it was funny. Mystery. That's interesting. That's interesting. Because ultimately that's what's happening. Right. 
right? And he's using that power, and then he gets up to Amy, and they start dancing. Yeah, yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> you can call it that. You can call it that. I mean, Dandridge takes some liberties here. You know what I mean? Straight up on the dance floor in front of everybody. He's not afraid. He's going up the skirt. He's, I mean, he, I'm like, what? He's, he's a little Harvey Weinstein action. <laughs> Straight up, no no remorse, no regrets. Just go right in. It's it's very provocative yeah. and and very um, uh, unprofessional on yeah. <laughs> on Dandridge's part. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's the only word I could literally come up right. with. Um, but but she but she does uh, succumb to the powers to a degree. She's very. Uh, that's the the seduction of the vampire yeah. that's vampire lore right it's very overtly sexual mm-hmm. and it's very out there and seductive and she's falling into that right and then as they're walking out because somehow charlie and amy got separated yeah she just kind of went with dan it was just her her leading or following him right and charlie's yeah. on the phone i think with with peter vincent and that's what it was he ended up calling peter right right and so they're separated, and this time Dandridge is taking full effect. Oh, totally. By the time he gets off the phone with Vincent, Dandridge and Amy are walking out the club. I mean, just like it's nothing. They're ready to go do the nasty. He, he stole his girl, man. Yeah. That's straight up. But not before he gets confronted by some security guards, and then Dandridge goes full vamp again. Yep. And at one point, Dandridge also tells Charlie, if you want to get her back, you need to bring Peter Vincent to my house yeah why was that though i, I think what's only, what's the appeal about peter vincent the only thing i could think of is when 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 peter vincent burned evil evil said the master is going to kill you for this so that's the only thing talking about dandridge the master that's the only thing i could think is maybe he wanted a little bit of revenge or maybe it's just because peter vincent's a loose end he knows he's a vampire and he's gotta he's gotta take care of it but he really doesn't need them to come to him i mean he's a vampire yeah, they already. I thought the whole point was he wanted Amy. Yeah, I, I thought so. Because even when they very first visit the house, right, right, when they're trying to prove to Charlie that he's not a vampire, like there's a little background talk between Dandridge and Amy, and she's kind of like flirting, and he's kind of like totally. flirting back. She's already sucked into his charm. Yeah, right. And so I, I, I didn't understand that that point, which was like bring Peter Vincent back, but. I think you allude to some good points. Are they validated enough for me to go yes or right. no? Like I, right. I'm still Seems unsure. A little convenient. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Dandridge goes full vampire in the club, takes some people out, and then uh, ends up taking Amy back to his house in his lair. Here's a couple questions for you. Okay. Okay. Uh, Charlie gets to the house. Mm-hmm. He he goes in and he's confronted, or he 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 runs into uh, Billy. Now, Billy's the, the sidekick to Dandridge. Right. Right. Then Vincent shows up, and then they both confront confront Billy. What I want to get into, can we determine what kind of being Billy is? I don't know, because uh, Peter Vincent even says you know, he's got a gun to use on Billy. And Charlie says, well, what if he's a vampire? And Peter Vincent says to him, he walks... A lot, he walks freely in the daylight, doesn't he? So he's not a vampire. So, but, so how can he walk around in the daylight, but bullets don't kill him? A stake, I think it was a stake to the heart killed him. Yeah, because 
Charlie has that stake. Right. And as he's walking up the stairs, um, Peter Vincent shoots him in the forehead. And he falls down. You think he's dead. And you think he's dead. And then he does that when we go back to the shot. Yeah. Yeah. Because in the foreground is Peter Vincent and Charlie. And in the background, the slow rise. And he starts walking up the stairs. And he starts walking yeah. up the stairs. Very effective shot, by yeah. the way. Very effective. And it plays into that thing that you were mentioning earlier, which yeah. is like there's kind of a tradition to that shot. Right. But then we know Billy's not dead. Right. And it, so he keeps shooting him. So he, he's, he's undead. Un, he's an undead. He's an undead, but he's not a vampire because he can walk around during the day. So I don't know what he is. And when, and when he finally gets him with the stake, he straight up melts into a skeleton. And the other vampires didn't do that. Yeah, so, there's like acid or green right. goo. So I don't know what he is, but I'm kind of intrigued to know what he is. And I know there's a sequel to this. I don't know if it, if it talks about that or if it goes into that. But I would love to know what kind of monster Billy is. Because he basically dissolves into a skeleton and then shatters. Oh, it's awesome, by the way. Like, that I loved it. That's the best for me, I think, just in terms of effects and in terms of the effectiveness of what how they do it. It was so good. I loved it. it I was, I was so geeking good. out so hard. So they kill Billy. I and and while this is going, one thing that I neglected to mention is beef uh the there's a there's a moment where Peter Vincent actually runs out of the house. Mm-hmm. Once he's in Dandridge's house, he runs out to go tell um, Charlie's mom. Well, you thought he was being a coward again. You thought he was just bailing. Yeah, yeah. But I then, assumed that he was going to hit the road again. Right. But he goes back because Charlie's been taken captive by Dandridge mm-hmm. and put in the same room as Amy, who's now through a, a certain phase of the turn, the turn, turning into a vampire. Yes. Yeah. But he, uh, Peter Vincent goes back to Charlie's house to tell his mom, which I don't know why he went to tell the mom. It's very, it's very bizarre. I didn't understand that. But this is another <laughs> scene that, that's really fun. Yeah. And I have questions on, and, and I want to hear your opinion, is Peter Vincent goes back and he goes into the mom's room to wake her up. And in the bed is Evil Ed with, with a the- raggedy Ann. Oh my Wig God. on. That just, I mean, it made me laugh. It made me laugh. It was hilarious. It was, I loved it. And uh, then they have a confrontation and Peter Vincent starts to run out and he's in the hallway. And then, and then all of a sudden evil Ed turns into a wolf. Yeah. Which I guess they can do. I don't know. This is where I was hoping we'd have some real vampire studies. Cause right. I don't know. Can they turn into wolves? I've never heard that. Uh, I know they can turn into bats, obviously. Bats make sense. Uh, and the, the funny thing is, later on, we see what it looks like when they turn into a bat, and it's a grotesque-looking bat. Yeah. Like, but this wolf looks like a real wolf. It's not like a caricature grotesque wolf. It's just straight. It's a straight-up wolf. Yeah. And then, and then once he turns, he's running down the hallway, and then it jumps to get Peter Vincent in the hallway. And, and look, it's it is a, it's either a trained dog, a husky right, dog that right. looks like a wolf, or it's a wolf dog, right. and it jumps up and Peter Vincent stabs it. Yep. In with the stake, and it this scene is awesome. I, I loved it. I loved it. It was so well executed. Yep. And the he falls down through the chandelier, and it looks it's the, it looks authentic. It looks it real. Looks like a real. It looks like a real dog sitting there dying with a stake through it. It's awesome. It's amazing. It's so well done. And then uh, it slowly starts to show the wolf turn back into Evil Ed. And yeah. that was cool. Those were cool prosthetics. Very cool. It was a mixture of like a human in a, and then had a dog head and a yeah. dog shoulder. 
and his but his arms were real. Well, and I because he was turning. I read a little bit about this. It was it was uh, a mixture of puppetry and the actual actor. Mm. So they had a big wolf puppet, and then they just had it like on top of him, and he had his arms out, and it was his real arms, and it was really the actor who's you know grabbing at Peter Vincent. And that is it was so cool because cool. I was watching it with my wife, and she, and she even was like. Yeah, that's gross. Yeah, it, yeah. It, so, it felt so real. Right, right. And I thought that was just awesome. It was Loved a cool it. scene. Loved it. But, I, but the, the question comes in like, this is something, and anybody that's listening, they can maybe give us some comments on or some feedback because I didn't know vampires turned into wolves. I didn't know that either. And maybe it's just my naivete in vampire studies. Right, right. It could be. Or maybe it's just in this in this universe. I don't know. So he turns in, but then Vincent makes his way back, and Charlie's now with... Uh, with Amy and Amy's turned um, and then Vincent makes his way. He breaks the door down and frees Charlie from the room. Yep. And they're like, we can't, we can't leave because Amy's here and she's going through this suffering. In other words, she's turning right. and it's this big change and she can't, she can't really move. Right. She's under some kind of, in, you know, trance. And then at this point, uh, Dandridge is outside and you see these cool POV shots again. And they like, they have him like flying through the window and by the window and all he's these kind of things. He's over here, he's on the roof. And it's cool. This is part that was bugging me about Charlie's character is it's like, he's over here. I'm going to run over here. He's yeah. over here. No, I'm going to go this way. And it's like, where is he getting this bravery? Yeah. Like Peter Vincent's an old wise man and he's like barely hanging on. Yeah. And this dumb kid is just like, I'm going to go fight this head vampire guy. And also, if you think about it, Peter Vincent's character has, is the one that kills Evil Ed. Yeah. So he's already taken him out. Yep. Um, so there, at some point, like we were discussing before, there's a possibility that there's almost a shift in, in character. I really felt like... Uh, you know, protagonist almost. In the third act, I really felt like Peter Vincent was the main character. Yeah. I just didn't... I forgot... I, I kind of forgot about Charlie. I didn't really care to go back to him. I knew he was kind of in peril because he's in the same room with Amy, but I just didn't really care. I was more interested to see what's going on with Peter Vincent. Because not only did he kill Evil Ed, but now he's freeing Charlie or attempting. He's now exactly. freeing Charlie. So he's kind of the hero. In that, this. That's a full character arc. He yeah. went from a coward kind of fraud guy yep. to the hero. Yep. And I it, I thought that was really cool. I was far more interested in that. Yeah, it's good development. And on the other hand, I just can't get a, I can't get a grasp on Charlie whatsoever. Because once they try to... Uh, once they get freed and they try to go down in the stairs and then there's another confrontation with Dandridge. Mm -hmm. Right. And now Dandridge is starting to turn. He's like full, full blown. Uh, he's on the staircase and he's turning into full demonic yep. mode. Yep. And, uh, he turns in. eventually he does the full transformation into a, into a bat. Yeah. Right. And then, uh, flies around the room. This is kind of a cool thing too. I wonder if there was, any slight puppetry with that particular technical I think shot it probably had to have been it just seemed cool how they did it yeah although once the the bat land and that's the other thing the bat actually doesn't it land on peter vincent yeah it kind of takes him out and i think peter vincent had a cane or some something and he was kind of fending it off he's had it in his mouth but then he ends up injuring it yeah he injures dandridge right so once again peter vincent's like the lead here. He's the one that's like kind of the stronger character. Dandridge is injured. So he flies into the that's basement, right. into the coffin. That's right. And then they get to the area with the coffin and, and Peter Vincent's the one that actually has the bravery to open the coffin and, right. and actually stab right. Dandridge. Uh, it doesn't quite kill him. Right. So Dandridge gets up and then they're in this and they room. Did that, that, 
that perfect classic vampire shot of the vampire rising from the coffin. You have to have that shot in a vampire movie. Which is kind of the static motion forward. Yes, yes. Yeah. And he had a stake in his heart. In his but heart. It, it, you have to have that shot. It's yeah. so awesome. Traditional. Yeah, definitely. But it doesn't kill him at that moment. And then they're in this room, and this is the final confrontation. Right. And apparently, the whole basement is made of glass. Yeah. My, <laughs> we were like, what's going? Wait, what? I don't, I don't understand. Because in the beginning of the film, the coffins go into the basement. Right. Underground. And underground. Yeah. So where's the glass coming it, from? Exactly. Because it's just window. Because the, the idea is that eventually Charlie throws a rock and it shatters a hole in right. a window that has, now it's now morning, it's dawn, and the, the sunlight is uh, beaming through the crack that he threw the, the right. rock through. Right. And it hits Dandridge. And so now they understand that if we throw a bunch of rocks at these windows that... <laughs> I don't know where they came from because we're in a basement. Boards or window? I don't understand. They're cre- they're 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 breaking like glass, but I mean glass is see through. If we for- <laughs> if we forgive the fact that we thought they were in the basement, exactly, and we just go now they're somewhere else, and forgive the fact that he had to be dead by morning in order to save Amy by dawn. So that was the whole plot point: is they had to kill him before dawn, right. in order to save Amy. Well, it's past dawn because the, the sun's up. She would have fully turned. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So there's a couple elements in the story that, that we go, eh. Right. You know, we're leaning into a little bit of uh, unbelievability. Yeah, in, in this vampire movie. There's some <laughs> unbelievability. There's some unbelievability in this vampire <laughs> exactly. movie, damn it. Exactly. It's supposed to be real. Exactly. <laughs> but they start throwing rocks, and then all the beams start shattering through, and this is what it ends up being the demise of, of Dandridge. Yep. Right. And they're victorious. Yeah. And, in their in their plot to kill this vampire and and to save Amy, and she's back to normal and uh, never mind the dead kid that's in uh, Charlie's house. We never hear what happened because remember after evil dies, he turns back into just himself. Yeah, the cross is burned. Cross is gone on his forehead, so he's just laying there in Charlie's house, a dead kid, and no one seems to care. <laughs> it's a it's a it's a moot point yeah exactly exactly they're just back to making out on the bed they're because ba- the <laughs> next follow-up is like everything back to square one right everything's back to normal right it's the two of them back in the and then peter vincent's on a television again he's yep. got his host job back yep and he's he's taught he get, throws a little shout out to charlie in, yep. in the in the so but they're back to normal forget about evil ed and his dead body right yeah, but then it, it's it's kind of hinted the evil Ed's not really dead, and and so that's exactly it because maybe because evil Ed they there was no dead body right right because I guess the last shot is them in is is Charlie and Amy in the bedroom and then it cuts to where we started at the beginning of the film with a shot looking into Dandridge's house or mm-hmm. old house and you see uh, two bright eyes light up. Evil says something at the, the end of the... In his very distinct in voice. In his very distinct voice. Something about Brewster. Oh, Because yeah, Brewster, yeah, it's yeah. Charlie's last name. Yeah. And that alludes to the fact that, indeed, that Evil isn't dead. So there right. was never a dead kid in the house. <laughs> I guess that that explains it. He's living on. And in Fright Night 2, which I haven't seen, maybe there's some story continuation yeah, that with could that be. kind of thing. Let's go. Old versus new horror. So uh, looking at horror films... The question is, so far we've, we've done A Nightmare on Elm Street, we've done A Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and now we've done Fright Night. 
we talked about this a little bit last podcast with some of the history of horror films. Mm-hmm. Where does this fit into the mold or the structure of a horror film for you? Is it is it something? It's not quite similar to the other movies that we've seen up to right. this point or we've discussed. It falls in some ways in more of a traditional horror structure. Yeah, I, I'd say so. And it's it's really hard, at least for me, to make vampires scary. Yeah. Uh, Thirty Days of Night did a good job because they're inhuman. But when it, when they start getting really seductive and stuff, to me, it's just it's not really scary anymore. So it's hard uh, to to call this a horror movie, but um, it it totally is. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I I'd say it's definitely a cult classic. It's not one of my favorites, but it's definitely a cult classic, and I I can see why people who love this movie love it. It just didn't reach me at the right time of my life, I think. I think if I would have grown up with it, I would have appreciated it a lot more, and I probably would be looking back a lot more fondly on it. I like that point because I kind of fall into the same boat. I didn't get in on it early, en- early enough. Right, right. I think if I had got in it um, earlier, I would have had a little bit more appreciation for it. Right. I had fun with the movie. For sure. Overall, um, minus some of the, po- the parts that we talked about, um, but I just wasn't nostalgic in a way that I probably would have been in another film. Yes. I also read something about it uh, emulating and kind of uh, being very similar to a movie by Roman Polanski. Oh, which one? So there's a film called The Fearless Vampire Killers. Oh, I haven't seen that one. And um, apparently, and for those that out, th- out there that have seen that movie, I guess there's a lot of um, uh, tie-ins between the stories of each of these films. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting one. That would be like a recommendation. If anybody really enjoyed Fright Night, that they should look, and, and Roman Polanski being the, the, the caliber of filmmaker that he mm-hmm. is, uh, the fearless vampire killers might be an interesting Yeah, I'll have watch. to watch that for yeah. sure. And uh, it also reminded me a lot, because this is a movie that came out two years after this, I think, was The Lost Boys. There was a lot that I think The Lost Boys probably lifted from this movie, a lot I, of the same. That's tropes. a great point. And I actually have more nostalgia for Lost me Boys. Me too, me too. Yeah, and I'd seen that a lot earlier on. And you say that, and I actually go back to the point that we were bringing up earlier, which is the POV shot. Yes. Yeah, when they're flying in. Yeah, exactly. The aerial POV shots of the vampires. Those were a little bit more chaotic, a little bit more Evil Dead style, Yeah, where the camera's moving around a little bit more. Here, it was far more graceful the way the camera was Yeah, there was a lot more fluidity to it. For sure, for sure. And also, obviously, uh, I know your, uh, your buddy had mentioned this rear window. Yeah. So taking something as classic as Hitchcock's film right. and going, how did they mold that storyline into something with vampires? Well, and that's the first thing I thought when he's sitting there watching, literally with binoculars watching. Um, that's what I was thinking, rear window. Yep, yeah. yep. So there's a tie in there. So the story was based on The Boy Who Cried Wolf. Although there wasn't a whole lot of uh, crying wolf. No. Where, false crying wolf, I should say. Right, but the concept of no one For believing sure. you. For sure. Uh, it took Holland three weeks to write the script. That's it? Yep. He couldn't stop writing. He just mentioned, I could. I wrote it in about three weeks, and I was laughing the entire time. <laughs> Literally on the floor, kicking my feet in the air in hysterics because there's something so uh, humorous in the basic concept. So it was always along with the thrills and chills, something there that tickled your funny bone. It wasn't a broad comedy, but it's a grin all the way through. Yeah, I'd agree so that's with that. Holland's synopsis of how he wrote the film. Some humility and it there goes, from, from Holland. Yeah, and it goes back to this point that we were talking about before. If you were to categorize it in a genre, and I was saying, look, I think it's got it's comedy. It it definitely does. I guess when I think of '80s horror comedies, I'm thinking, and I don't know if you've seen this, Return of the Living Dead. It's just it's basically just kind of slapstick. The zombies are able to talk, and and also the Lost Boys, you know, with Corey Feldman. 
uh, well, both Corys, I should say. Uh, I, those I would classify more as when I can when I think of '80s horror comedies. That's what I think of, and I actually like this better than the way those styles of movies are done. Yeah, I agree. Um, by the time Fright Night came around, Holland was already a Hollywood veteran because he had already acted and directed in multiple films. Interesting. Or, not directed. Not directed. I'm sorry, acted and written multiple films, um, and. By the time he did Fright Night, this was the first film where uh, he had uh, sufficient, sufficient credibility in Hollywood to be able to direct. So he kind of leveraged what he had done up to that point. And like we were talking about before, like he, utilized, he wrote this for himself to direct it. Nice. Um, apparently, Chris Sarandon, who plays Dandridge, did not want to initially play the role. Really? Uh, yeah, that's what it says here in the, some of the research. He said, my agent said that someone was interested in the possibility of my doing the movie. And I said to myself, there's no way I can do a horror movie. I can't do a vampire movie. I can't do a movie with a first-time director. Wow. Wow. So that's from Sarandon. I mean, he just nailed it. Because he did really well. Right. It was a great performance. Vincent Price apparently loved the movie. No. So, <laughs> I uh, can see that. Yeah, so he apparently loved it. Um he said it was wonderful, and he thought that uh, Roddy, who played Roddy McDowell, who played mm -hmm. uh, Peter Vincent, did a wonderful job. Um, and he he said, "I thank God that he didn't ask me, uh, me to play uh, the role of of the Vincent Price can't play the, that role. He can't. He, he just there's no way. No, there's too much vulnerability in there. Yeah. <laughs> so this movie came out in uh, August of 1985. 91 percent on Rotten Tomatoes from the critics. Intr from the critics. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just blown away. These the critics love these horror movies so much. 76% from the audience. Okay. That that makes a little bit more sense. 91%. And I think it must be from the technical standpoint like we talked about. I think, once again, they're looking at it, understanding the work that it takes to, yes. to get some of the shots they got. I think so, yeah. Uh, where are you going to put it in terms of your rating? If you have to go at, uh, out of 10... Where's it going to fall for you? Um, I, I'm kind of wavering, and this is going to sound weird, between 6.5 and 7. Uh, 6.5 just kind of seems low, but 7 seems a little high. Um, it, it's good, and I would recommend it if you are a horror movie person. Even if you're not, it's 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 good movie. It's a lot of fun. But you know, without really liking the main character a whole lot and some of the other plot points and some of the other story or plot uh, holes and some of the other story problems, it's just I can't I can't get it up much higher than that. Yeah. So uh, I think we're kind of flowing in the same direction. Mm -hmm. uh, for me, uh, love uh, Chris Sarandon as Dandridge in The Vampire. I think we, we nailed that. We talked about it. Uh, really didn't love evil. Uh, it was the 50-50 split. Mm -hmm. The character for me was good. And then I was like obnoxious at the same <laughs> time. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, it's interesting because this protagonist I don't necessarily love all the way through. Uh, I don't have empathy or sympathy for Charlie much at all. Um, I think as a story, it's really fun. I think from a filmmaker's perspective, I love the, the technical approaches that they took. I'm blown away uh, at Holland's ability to, to write and direct something that's fun. I do like that they touch into the comedy. So mm -hmm. for me, that's a big piece to it. Um, it's not just he's kind of playing a hybrid in two worlds, which is horror comedy. Um, he's not going authentic 
like Chainsaw. Right. And he's not going just complete comedy and, and di- absurdity right. either. He's playing in that middle ground. And I liked that. I thought that was an interesting take on it. And I think he, he towed those line, that line very, very well. And I think the execution of being able to manipulate both sides, he does, he does a great job. I agree. Um, so, you know, but, and I would recommend it. I think everyone should go watch the film. It's a great, fun October movie. Yes. You know, where yeah. you just want you don't want to get crazy scared. Right, right. Um, you know, but you want to have a fun time. I think this is the one to watch. I agree. Maybe throw a couple back and just have a good laughing time watching this film. And so I'm going to come in out of a 10 and go like a 7.2. Okay. 7.2. I like 7.2. that. 7.2. And I'm going a little high and I'm being a little forgiving because... Uh, once again, I'm looking at it from that filmmaker's eye, which is like, this is his first directorial For sure. film. And those practical effects, the gore effects were great. So good. It's not over the top gory, but it, it's just like enough just to satisfy a, a, a gore hound like me. Uh, it, it's just, it was good. It was yeah. fun. It was a lot of it was, fun. It was a good, fun movie. So uh, going into this next week, we'll continue Horror Month. Um, we're going to change it up a bit. Uh, as a quick review for anybody listening, We've done A Nightmare on Elm Street, a te- The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Fright Night. And coming into the next podcast, we're going to do The Blair Witch Project. Ooh, another one of my favorites. So we're going to change it up a little bit, talk about that genre and how it revolutionized the found footage uh, category. Uh, really invented it. Yeah. And so we'll take Blair Witch, on, uh, Blair Witch Project uh, head on. Cool. Into the next cast. Alan, thanks for... Baron with me. Oh, hey, thank Getting you for having me on again. I love it, man. I love and, it. And uh, thanks for listening, everybody. This is Tame Aperture Podcast signing out. The Tame Aperture Podcast is produced by Dutch Angle Pictures in association with Studio B Productions. Listen, watch, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and YouTube.